It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In history, we have a idea in the Christian life of something known as the dark night of the soul. And I know that as students here, you've some of you have become very familiar with this idea uh, personally. And it is a transitionary process that the Holy Spirit will bring a believer through where they have to learn their weakness. They have to understand their inability and they have to take the grip that they have and let go of what they have previously trusted and take that grip and stick it firmly upon Jesus Christ. And of course, you're going to see that picture in the story of Jacob and where he is going to have a dark night, the dark night of the soul. And uh, do we have, uh, oh, there it is. The dark night of Viking dominance uh, is the name of this. And in a sense, you're going to see as we're going through this uh, story of Alfred the Great, and some of you have said, are we really going through the story of Alfred the Great or are we going through the story of the Middle Ages? This is the story of Alfred the Great. We've just had to set the stage, and we are going to have an encounter with Alfred today. Uh, he is actually going to enter the storyline, and it's at sort of that fullness of time where things are getting pretty desperate. Uh, he's the second in command. He's the deputy to his brother, who is the king of Wessex, and the Vikings are going to make their move against Wessex. It takes quite a few years for them to control the rest of the island of Britain, and now they have one lone stronghold, and that's where we're going to enter the story. But as we do, we have this idea that I am going to sort of unfurl, and so I want to almost set it as a backdrop, almost for you to be chewing on as we move forward. But the dark night of the soul is actually something that I'm going to, going to say is good, most of us would be like, yeah, I don't know. I think I would love to have a version of Christianity where I could skip right over that. And yet what we see is what's going to take place in this story in the Old Testament where Jacob is going to grab a hold of God. What's ironic is his name means heel grabber. And so he's always grabbed something other than God. And so he grabbed uh, after uh, Esau's birthright. And yet he still didn't have what he was after. He grabbed for the blessing. He grabbed for Laban's horses. In other words, he, he was always after something, deceiving, supplanting, conniving. And God is going to take the fact that he esteems the right thing, but he's going about it the wrong way. And he's going to teach Jacob how to grab a hold of the one that actually can give him what he's after. He can give him that blessing that he so desperately desires. And so God will bring us to that point or that end where we have to grab him. And then he's going to test us. Are you going to hold on or are you going to let go? And that grip is so very, very important. It's the proving of the inner man. Here's a quote to sort of start us out. Genesis 32, 6. Esau is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. These 400 men are also armed. And that strikes a certain terror inside of us. It's like, yeah, so you have this new life. You're headed to the land of Canaan. That's actually where he's headed. He's headed to the land of promise, if you want to say it that way. And yet what stands in his way? His arch nemesis, 
his lifelong mm, problem, right? The firstborn, the flesh. It's that first side of you, the old man, and he's armed, and you don't have arms. So you're weaker than your opponent. What do you need? You need someone to help you. You need to recognize that God alone is your salvation. And this is the dark night of the soul. Critical, important. What we're going to do is we're going to go through a series of, I'm going to unpack history, okay? And so for a while, it's not going to feel very spiritual. I'm going to get a whole bunch of stuff out on the, uh, out on the, uh, the table, and then we're going to start reasoning with it. So the rise of the unlikely hero, the extraordinary passing of the five kings of Wessex, what we're going to see in the history of Wessex is so unprecedented. Now, in this time period where the average lifespan was 32 years, I guess you could say, well, maybe it's not as unprecedented as you would think. But he is the fifth son. And to become king of Wessex, he needs his dad to pass away and all four of his sons to pass away. And they all need to be at the age where their sons are not old enough to take command which means it has to happen pretty quick. And this, that's exactly what's going to happen. Everything about this is going to happen surprisingly fast to set up a very unlikely kingship for Alfred, which ironically is going to ultimately save the entire island. So we'll just go through it. In 854, Osber, his mother, passes away. He's five years old. That's sort of a rough start, guys. Uh, in 854, also, Ethelstan, his eldest brother, heir to the throne, dies. He's five, uh, this is when Alfred is five years old. 858, Ethelwolf, still think that's a pretty cool name, uh, that's his dad, his father, reigning king of Wessex, dies. He's nine years old. So then Ethelbald, isn't that a great name, uh, in 860 is going to become the king of Wessex. He's going to die in 860, I, I, said, I said that wrong. He's going to become king in 858. He's going to die in 860 when Alfred is 11 years old. This is a lot of death in, in this young boy's life. And then in 865, Ethelbert uh, is going to die, and that's when Alfred is 16 years old, and Ethelred will come into power. So Ethelred is sort of present tense as we walk into this story. Uh, so we are going to be in 870, the end of 870, the beginning of 871 AD, the king of Wessex is Alfred's older brother, Ethelred. And so now obviously you're going to see that I'm, I'm giving something away. Ethelred is going to die uh, and Alfred is going to be 22 years old when that takes place. That's 17 years of tragedy and pain. The foundation for this guy's life is not ease. It was not that he had these parents that you know, just walked through all this challenge with him and tutored his soul. This man is living in the dark ages where uh, the truth is somewhat hidden and obscured. And yet he has been entrusted with something. His mom taught him a, a love for literature even though she, you know, he, she died when he was five. And so he always had a passion to learn to read. And so he memorized all these poems when he was young. And he had this fascination for literature, which is going to become very, very important in his pursuit of the scriptures. And so he, though he lives in a rather illiterate age, is going to pursue the knowledge of scripture. And he is going to become a surprisingly learned man, but his mind is going to be shaped by things that would cause a, a king to become a great king. So even though he's going to start with pain, 
God is going to leverage that into a great strength in his life. And I just want that to sit on your soul a little too. That a lot of us can think that tragedy and pain disqualifies us to be used in a mighty way when in actuality it sets the stage for God to use us in a mighty way. So the Vikings are on the move. Uh, In 865, they're going to come into East Anglia, and this was in our last message, I believe, Uh, I think it was, where uh, maybe it was two two messages ago. They're going to come in. Remember King Edmund? King Edmund is in East Anglia, and I'm a fan of King Edmund. Uh, Poor poor King Edmund's going to meet his doom uh, in this particular message, but I like the guy. And so in 865, they're going to come into East Anglia. Remember, he's going to pay the Danegeld. And he's going to pacify the Vikings. It's like, what can I do for you so that we don't need to fight? He's like, okay, well, give us uh, food and uh, lodging and whatever we ask for, basically. He's like, okay, we'll take care of you. So he actually fosters the growth of a mighty army on their shores. And then they're like, hey, we, want, we all want horses, 5,000 horses. They're going to take those horses. They're going to run up into Northumbria in 866 and take Northumbria, kill the kings, and, you know, they're going to rule in Northumbria, and that's going to be their new base. So now, thanks to Edmund, they are going to now be in control of Northumbria, and they're going to go down to Mercia in 867. So here's a map, and you can see in 865 East Anglia, it's the yellow, and then Northumbria is the green. They're going to go up and take Northumbria. That's their new sort of capital, their base. And then they're going to come into Mercia, sort of the heart of the island, and this is where they're going to... Uh, sort of, we're going to pick up on the story right at this time. So the fall of Snottingham. Uh, I, I, I'm really fascinated with the, the name Snottingham because it's not called Snottingham anymore, but uh, I can't help myself from referring to it as Snottingham. <clears throat> so this is what Dr. Benjamin Merkel says. At that time, more than three centuries before the time of Robin Hood, the Anglo-Saxon name of Nottingham was Snottingham. Apparently named after an earlier chieftain named Snot. (laughs) Luckily for the modern-day residents of the city, the S was eventually dropped from the name, and so rather than Snottingham, the city is now called Nottingham. However, at this time, it was called Snottingham. So, hey, I can't help it, guys. We need to make sure we call it by its historically accurate name. So there's Snottingham right there, okay? It's that big red dot in the middle of Mercia. So they're going after the heart of the country. This is a bold move by the Vikings. They've been sort of around the perimeter, and they have tried to avoid Mercia, but they have built up their strength, and they're ready to sort of go after this massive uh, central part of the country. Mercia is a mighty kingdom. So the sons of Harry Breaches steal Snottingham. I really liked that title, too. Uh, so if you remember Ragnar, uh, he's the Viking king who is going to be killed in Northumbria, and then his sons, uh, <coughs> Ivar the Boneless uh, is one of them, and they're going to go and actually take this, this city. <clears throat> so Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, in AD 867, Ivar and Ub led the army south to Nottingham, the capital of the kingdom of Mercia, the northern neighbors of Wessex. The city was quickly captured by the Viking army who refortified it against any attempt to retake the city. So they're going to take Nottingham, Snottingham, and then they're going to fortify it. The siege on Snottingham in 867 and the exposure of an unfit military model. So what we're going to find and what's going to be exposed in this is it shouldn't be that big of a deal. 
uh, if you think about this, okay, the, the Vikings are going to come interior into the country, which is a very dangerous thing for them to do because they used to just come to the shore, steal, and then go home. Their base was always back uh, in Denmark. It wasn't here in the island. But now they're setting up a base. But they're going to take Snottingham, and they're going to then fortify it. And so the way that you deal with a fortified city is you starve it out. You lay siege to it. And so that's what they're going to do, and yet it's not going to work because something's wrong with the military structure of this island of Britain. And that's going to become very, very important as we progress in this story is Alfred is going to inherit a system of military, and the whole island functions by it. And that is you have a whole bunch of farmers, and whenever there's a crisis, those farmers are going to leave their fields and come and pick up arms. And sometimes that's like a pickaxe and a, you know, a shovel type of a thing. That's what they're fighting with. They fight with what they have. It's a very untenable military when you're dealing with the Vikings who are full-time in this. They're not farmers. They're plunderers. They're raiders. And so you do all your work on the field, they'll just come in and take it. It becomes a very, very unsettling uh, reality right here. This is where you're going to begin to realize that they're not set up to do this and to fight against these Vikings. So Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, the forces of Wessex were not prepared to break through Nottingham's old Roman ramparts and its city walls. They had no choice. And by the way, I think I skipped a piece, and that is that the King of Mercia is going to invite the King of Wessex, Ethelred, and Alfred to come to their defense. And so Ethelred and Alfred are like, yes, we will do it. And so they come up to lay siege, to join the, uh, the people of Mercia, the soldiers of Mercia. So they had no choice but to settle in for a lengthy siege of the city. Unfortunately, unlike Ivar and Ub's army, the men of Wessex were not professional soldiers. This meant that though they could be counted on for fierce fighting during short and intense battles, they could not be counted on for long, protracted campaigns. These men were farmers who had to return home to tend to their crops and livestock and could not spare months of waiting for the Viking troops to be starved into submission by a dwindling food supply. After a very short time, the Wessex forces began to steal out of the camp secretly in order to return home. Burgred, who's the king of Mercia, realizing he would not be able to wait the Vikings out, reluctantly won peace for his city by bribing the raiding army to leave. Now you guys do know what that bribe is called, right? That's the Danegeld. And so as a result, after all of this, calling Alfred and Ethelred up, it's like, hey, we need to regain Snottingham. And so after laying siege and then all the farmers are like, hey, I can't stay here. I mean, I got I had a family to feed. And so I'm like hanging outside of a city waiting for them to starve. And these guys aren't starving very quickly. And so as a result, I'm going to sneak out. And so you start to see all these farmers going home. And it's like, this isn't working. This is a terrible model. And as a result, Burgred is going to pay the Danegeld which the Vikings love. The Vikings love it when they get the Danegeld. It's very easy money uh, for them. So the Vikings are on the move. The story continues. So again, we had 865 East Anglia. That was when King Edmund was host. And then 866, they take Northumbria. And now they're going to come down to Mercia, and that's what we just went through, the siege on Snottingham. And now they're going to sort of have this control over Mercia, over Northumbria, and so they look longingly at Edmund's East Anglia again. And they're going to go into East Anglia, 
and they're going to head right through Mercia. Mercia will not touch them. They're like, hey, you can use our land, you can pass through. See, this is a very bad setup. In other words, where Mercia is actually allowing for East Anglia to be struck by the Vikings. And so through submissive Mercia, they're going to head in 869, and they're going to take East Anglia. And this is what we call the end of Edmund. And I like Edmund. This is sort of sad uh, for me. Even though we're not spending a lot of time on Edmund, I like him. And I think I like him because of the Chronicles of Narnia too. So Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, the East Anglian army... Unprepared for the surprise attack was beaten easily. On November 20th, 869, Edmund was taken captive by the Viking chieftains Ivar and Ub, and according to the story, passed on by his sword bearer, was tortured and executed. First, the king was bound to a tree where he was scourged and beaten. Then the Vikings shot arrows at him until he bristled like a hedgehog. Annoyed at his continued calling out to Christ, the Vikings finally beheaded him. I know, it's not the most pleasant story, but at the same time, the reason I left that in there is because I was pretty uh, impressed with Edmund, and I, I wanted to show him off a little uh, to all of you, that even though his end is disastrous, I like how he ended. He ended well. And, but what you're going to see is a building crisis on this island, because they've now taken the whole entire north end, and they have all the momentum. Has anyone been able to stop the Vikings? No, not even close. So this isn't looking good. And so Ethelred down in, in Wessex, you know, along with his deputy, Alfred, um, are quaking in their boots. And so with Northumbria conquered and the kingdoms of Mercia and East Anglia crippled, the only Anglo-Saxon nation left to be subdued by the raiding Vikings was the kingdom of Wessex. Okay, so I want you to feel the darkening of the night here. I want you to feel that it's getting worse before it's getting better. And oftentimes that's sort of what needs to happen in us. We need to get to that point of dependence. We need to get to that point where we don't trust the strength of our own sword. But we have to call out for the strength of a greater sword. We have to call out to God Almighty. So the Vikings are on the move. So 865 East Anglia, 866 Northumbria, 867 Mercia, 869 East Anglia through submissive Mercia. And then 870, they're going to enter into Wessex. Oh, no! And they're going to take a, a place called Reading, a town called Reading, and they're going to take it pretty easily. But then the, the people of Wessex, the soldiers of Wessex, are going to rise up. And they're going to go after reading, to take it back. And it doesn't go so well. I'll just say it that way. So this is the first fight that Ethelred and Alfred are going to be in against the Vikings. The fight at reading had been humiliatingly lost. And Ethelwolf, by the way, that is not the father of Alfred. I know it seems like everyone in this story has the same name. Uh, Ethelwolf is a sort of a mature, strong, elder statesman in Wessex who's their best soldier. And he's like the bold guy saying, let's take him, and leading the pack. And it says, and Ethelwolf, their most experienced military commander, was dead. So he died in the Battle of Reading. Ethelred and Alfred were struck with grief and shame at their terrible defeat. Their first attempt to combat at combat had been a dismal failure, costing countless lives, including one of Wessex's most seasoned military leaders and leaving the rest of Wessex vulnerable to a Viking attack. I don't know if you've ever felt this in your spiritual life. If you were going to look at your emotions and your experience uh, at this exact juncture, how do you think you're doing if you're Alfred 
or your Ethelred. Okay, this is like the one, never have the Vikings been stopped. And the one time you tried to do it, it led to absolute disaster and humiliation. East Anglia couldn't stop them. Northumbria couldn't stop them. Mercians couldn't stop them. Is there any hope? I mean, this is a rough situation. And yet this is a situation that God doesn't mind bringing our souls into. Up to this point, sin may have had the upper hand. And every time you've tried to stand against it, it knocks you down. And that's what leads us to the dark night. Because in your own strength, you can't seem to muster this. Jacob's feeling it in the dark night. He's going to divide his army, in, sorry, his, his group into two. So he has 12 sons, right? And he's going to divide that into two parties. So if one can get away, even if one is lost, at least he spares a little. And so he is at this desperate place, and he's going to go off to be alone. And that's when he runs into God. And in a sense, we're going to see a similar pattern here in Alfred's life. Alfred is being prepared for something, and that is to stand boldly against this evil. But right now, if, if you're transferring from your boots into his boots, you could understand that he's not feeling too great right now. I mean, the fact that history is going to call him Alfred the Great, he's not feeling too great right now. In fact, there's very little hope. He's not even king. He's just deputy, right? If you're the king, if you're Ethelred, you know how you're feeling? You know what's happened to every other king? Uh, they've been tortured, tormented, and uh, brutally murdered. So you could just imagine being Ethelred right now. It's like, it's not really a privilege to be the king when you're fighting the Vikings, because the Vikings want to make a show of you. It's like, oh, so who's in charge here? All right, you. And so I don't want to lead this. I don't want to stand up against this evil. The enemy works with intimidation. That's his entire game. He's a big bark. What we need to remember as Christians is that big bark is toothless. However, if you buy the big bark, you will submit because of fear. Fear is the devil's game. It is not God's game. In other words, God isn't trying to cow you. The enemy tries to cow you through fear. God wins you through love. And our fear of God is one that stands awe-stricken before his holy presence, recognizing that this God is not just holy, but that he loves us. And so as a result, instead of running away from him, we run right onto his legs and we cling. It's a very, very different sort of fear. Dr. Benjamin Merkel said, the Danes were sure to follow up on their victory with an assault on other towns in Wessex. Uh-oh, guys. See, what we're building towards is what is called the Battle of Ashdown. And so if you're British, that makes sense. You know, but it, since most of us aren't British, the Battle of Ashdown, it's like, hey, why does that matter? This is one of the most significant moments in history for the Brits. Okay, in the history of this island nation, what is about to happen is of great significance. Because up to this point, no one has been able to push back on the Vikings. No one has been able to say no. No one has been able to rise up high enough to be able to create any kind of fear and dread in the enemy. And you're not expecting it from Ethelred and Alfred in this situation, okay? I don't think any of us right now, if we're betting people, are going to bet on Ethelred and Alfred. However, and I don't want to give anything away. It's just called the Battle of Ashton. I didn't say who won it, did I? I I'm just saying that's what we're headed towards. 
So the Danes were sure to follow up on their victory with an assault on other towns in Wessex. The Saxons had to reorganize swiftly and prepare to meet this inevitable attack. There was no hope of aid from Northumbria, East Anglia, or Mercia. Well, that makes sense. They're not going to come to the aid. They're cowed into obedience to the Vikings. All the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had either been conquered or were so entirely intimidated by the Danish armies that coming to the aid of Wessex was out of the question, leaving Wessex to stand alone. And this is the way a lot of us have to realize. All the things God will allow us to prove that all the different things that we could try, our own willpower, our own determination, our own discipline, that doesn't work. Having money, that doesn't work. Popularity, no, that doesn't work. There's a lot of things that we will try to see if we can move our way into a place of strength. But we cannot live as God has called us to live. We cannot defeat these Vikings with any other method. It's not by horses and chariots. It's not by the strength of man's arm. It's by his spirit that he does what he does. And so as a result, we have to get to the place where everything outside of his spirit is exposed as being fraudulent and a counterfeit. It cannot save. Dr. Benjamin Merkel continues, as the Vikings advanced into the heart of Wessex, intending to ravage the land as they had throughout Northumbria and East Anglia, the men of Wessex were left with little choice. They rushed to cut off the Viking advance, intercepting the Danish raiders at Ashdown. Oh, Oh, guys, are you getting excited? I mean, this is the first time we've ever seen something. I mean, I just summarized the Battle of Reading, didn't even go into it. You notice that? But now here I am, and we're like stopping at a place where we actually see Alfred in a weakened state. He's just a deputy. He's not even the king, right? But he is going to be in his first battle, the first time he's going to engage with the enemy, as opposed to having his men just engage. This is the first time he is going to engage. So they rushed to cut off the Viking advance, intercepting the Danish raiders at Ashdown, where they were able to force the Vikings to face them in battle. So the Vikings are on the move. So 865 East Anglia, 866 Northumbria, 867 Mercia, 869 East Anglia. December of 870 is Reading, the Battle of Reading, and January of 871. So the Vikings like to fight in the winter. Not many of us do right? The Vikings are from the Scandinavian region. This is nice and toasty warm in Great Britain. And so as a result, they're like, hey, it's January. Why, why not take territory? So as a result, the, the, the people of Wessex have to fight in January, if you could imagine. And this is the Battle of Ashdown. So I have a big red dot uh, there for you. Now, technically, no one knows the exact location of Ashdown. In fact, as you study the Battle of Ashdown, people are, will vigorously debate where they believe the battle was fought. And I'm not exactly sure that it really matters, but people have some pretty strong opinions on this. Uh, so I'm not going to jump into that. I really don't care exactly where it was fought. But in that red dot somewhere... Uh, which is, that covers a lot of territory, that red dot, uh, is the Battle of Ashdown. It's in that zone. So January 8th, 871, the proving of the young hero. So we are proven in and through the dark night. We are proven when it appears that all the odds are against us. There is nothing quite like the gift of impossible circumstances. Now, I know that might not sound like a positive to you. I have been brought in my own soul many times to a place 
where in the natural realm there is no remedy. And believe me, my brain is searching, seeking, grasping for remedy. And it's funny, if I can just grab a remedy in my mind, even if it's far-fetched, it's like, but this could happen, I can rest a little. But God has brought me to places where there's only one solution. And I've had to recognize that. It's like, God, thank you for bringing me here. This is where I want to be, even though I really don't want to be here. You see, there's two parts to Eric. There's a flesh part. There's an old man part that does not want to be in a place of dependence. But that side is crucified, and I don't want it ruling my life. There's another side that wants to be dependent upon God, and this is what God's exercising. And so as a result, I can rejoice in those circumstances. When God brings me to the end of Eric, where the only way that I can make it through to the other side of this trial is God, is God intervention. And as a result, I have a fondness for what we're talking about here and what I see in this story because I'm familiar with it. I know what it's like to feel weak against an incoming challenge. And where even up to that point, you feel like you've only lost. Technically, you don't even have experience to look back to to say, but we did win that victory. No, you don't even have that behind you where you can reason and say, but God did win here. No one's defeated the Vikings. No one's ever stopped their onrush. And so as a result, you don't have anything. The wonderful thing about Scripture is we can reach back and say, but the people who have trusted God all throughout the ages have been backed by God. Even if personally my own life hasn't yet witnessed that power, the great cloud of witnesses are here to testify to my soul that God has always proved faithful. But then you get even stronger when it becomes your experience. And I can now reach back in my own life and say, God was faithful, God was faithful, God was faithful. He has always been faithful. The fact that we're standing here and Ellerslie is still going, Sandy, you could make a couple comments on that. Is it impossible or plausible? <laughs> it is impossible that we're still here. I mean, truly remarkable that we are still going because we have had all hell and the kitchen sink of hell thrown at us. And yet, and there were times where it was literally no way could this thing work. And yet, here we are. God is good. God is faithful. God is true. January 8th, 871. So here's Winston Churchill. He's going to weigh in on our story. Alfred began his second in command to his elder brother, the king. There were no jealousies between them, but a marked difference of temperament. Ethelred, he spells it without that little A-E uh, thing, inclined to the religious view that faith and prayer were the prime agencies by which the heathen would be overcome. Alfred, though also devout, laid the emphasis upon policy and arms. I'm not exactly sure if I agree with Winston Churchill's conclusions here, because there's nothing in history that makes this statement except for the example that you're going to see. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that, because I believe that Alfred was not shortchanged on the fact that he believed it was up to God to win this battle. It's just that Ethelred, <laughs> well, I need it to unfold for you, but it is a, a very interesting statement, that Ethelred believed that God would procure a victory in and through prayer and in and through dependence, and that was going to be their secret. I don't like the fact that he sort of juxtaposes that with Alfred and makes it sound like Alfred didn't believe that. 
I think it's just, it's a great statement though, because how, if you were to look at Joshua against Jericho, what is the secret for that king, if you want to call uh, Joshua a king in that situation, for that leader to win? It's that he would trust that his God was able to overcome. And he didn't lean on arms and the strength of men's ability. He leaned on God and the strength of God's ability. And I think that's a profound statement because that is one of the things that God is always going to teach us as the saints. There's a, a fine balance between what we do in our spiritual trust and leaning and what we do in the natural man, like what we actually do in a natural sense. If a arrow is flying at me, I could say God can protect me from that arrow, and at what point do I move out of the way? Does that make sense? And there's, there's a combination of two things. I have been given a physiology to move. I've also been given a spiritual trust and faith to believe. So which way do you go? And you would say, I would prefer a blend. And that's exactly right. I think the spiritual life is a blend. You know, to say that God can defend me from all arrows, and so someone shoots an arrow at you and you just chuckle at the arrow, he can. And I could imagine it just sort of bouncing off someone's nose. And then everyone going, did you just see that? And then the guy keeps marching forward. It's like, whoa, that'd be pretty cool, right? It's also pretty cool if, says, if someone says, I trust God in battle, and an arrow goes flying at them, and they go, whew, and they move out of the way. And they go, did you see that? <laughs> that guy has like supernatural instincts. No matter what's happening, the arrow can't hit him. And I would be impressed with either. In other words, to us, we have to mature in that two-handed approach. I trust my God. He's the reason I'm bold in battle. At the same time, God, show me when I need to move. Show me when I need to jump. Show me when I need to crawl. And that's part of the balance that we're learning in this thing. God is going to say, I'm going to bring down Jericho, but then he's going to give him specifics. March all the way around that city today. Okay. March again around that city. And remember, seven days on the seventh day, seven times around the city. Now blow the horn, the trumpet. Now shout. You see, they're doing something in obedience, but their confidences are in God. And so you're going to see the same dynamic taking place here. Dr. Benjamin Merkel says, the Viking forces carefully chose their battle positions before the soldiers of Wessex had arrived at Ashdown. So here's the names of the kings of the Vikings, okay? We've got some, two new names to introduce, Bagsek and Halfdan. So Halfdan is one of the sons of Harry Breaches, okay? And so these are the new kings. Ivar has died over in uh, like the Ireland, the Wales area. And the other guy, I don't remember what happened to him, disease or something, right? So now we have these two new kings that are taking over. And when one Viking king goes down, believe me, there's another wicked one to rise in his place. And you're going to meet a whole bunch more. Vikings don't last very long, uh, any more than the kings of Wessex seem to. Bagsek and Halfdan, the two Viking kings, selected the highest point on the hillside for their defensive position, lining up their men along the crest of the ridge and forcing the Wessex army to attack from below. Though the Vikings may have been using horses or ponies to speed their travel, the horses would have been released before the battle because the Vikings preferred to fight on their feet rather than on horseback. The Danish army was then divided into two units, one commanded by the two Viking kings, Bagsek and Halfdan, and the other commanded by a collection of the Viking earls. 
Though the Vikings, as a result of cunning and not cowardice, may have frequently used a strategy that minimized engaging in the sort of open field combat that they were to face, that they were about to face, the Viking soldiers were nothing but battle hungry on that bitterly cold morning. Like hungry wolves, they waited uneasy, almost parched with bloodthirst. They sat on the ridge watching for the approach of the Wessex soldiers from below, testing their blades and tightening their armor, promising their gods a grisly sacrifice of victims soon to be offered up on the battlefield. Uh, how would you like to approach this? I mean, as, as a man, w- when you study war, you're always having to put yourself in it, and it's cold too. I mean, it's not just like it's a nice spring day when kings go forth to battle. I mean, it's supposed to be in the spring. I mean, come on, what are we doing this in January for? And so I feel cold even in this. But then I have these Vikings who are, you know, talking to their gods about sacrificing uh, their victims, you know, to their gods. It's like, you know what? This doesn't sound very pleasant. Everything about this is evil, and it's encroached upon our territory. We didn't invite it. It has come against us, but we need to rise up. We need to defend. We need to stand against. The brothers divide the Wessex strength in two. So Ethelred and Alfred are going to make a decision, and they are going to, to match the two different groups of the Vikings, they're going to divide in two as well which is going to become very, very important in the story. That's why I'm telling you this, okay? Usually I don't go into battles. You know, even when World War II, I hardly ever went into what actually happened in the battle. I was teaching other types of angles on it. But Alfred and Ethelred are going to go into two different directions, and they're going to come in from two different places, and then they're going to meet at a certain point, okay? That's very, very important in this story. So as he returned to his men, Alfred was faced with a difficult task. He was barely 22 years old and had only experienced his first combat four days earlier, an experience that had not gone well for him or his troops. He was neither a king nor a seasoned warrior. He had little to commend himself to the men of Wessex, who were now expected to follow him up the soon-to-be-bloodied slope of Ashdown, lacking age, experience, and the crown. Alfred had no room for indecision, bumbling, or cowardice. I don't know if you've ever felt moments like this. It's like, God, this is a little bigger than me. His demeanor had to be resolute, sharp, and bold. After he had returned to his men, he wasted little time before informing them of the task at hand. He charged them to acquit themselves like men, to be worthy of the king they serve, to remember their God, and to trust in God's strength and mercy. Then he ordered them to take up their weapons, form their ranks, and be quick about it all. So Dr. Benjamin Merkel continues. After a short march, Alfred and his fighting men spilled out of the woods and onto the rising slope of the battleground into the full view of the Viking throng. But far more dismaying to Alfred than the taunting force on the hillside ahead was the absence on either flank of his brother and the second half of the Wessex army. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so he's headed in to battle with half the strength of Wessex. Now, remember who he's up against? He's up against the Vikings, who were undefeated. So to come in with half the strength of an army and to be 22 years old and unseasoned, I mean, he, what, what does he have to merit a victory uh, in this? I mean, th- this is a bad situation. Uh, by the way, I'm just going to give you a, a little uh, quick peek into what his brother is doing, because we do know he was praying. That's what his brother, remember his brothers, that's why Winston Churchill is going to say his brother had a firm belief that it was through prayer and through God's intervention that a king would win his battles. So his brother 
when he's supposed to be meeting Alfred, is praying. That's, that's an interesting dilemma, don't you think? So could you imagine being Alfred right here? Okay, now, you are Alfred right here. See, little did you know. You're just Alfred in 2021. You see, you are headed into an impossible battle. But you need to remember that the king is coming. The king is girding himself for battle on your behalf. And yet sometimes we have to take a step into that battle trusting that he is going to back us up. And I, I mean, I, can't, I don't really want to live out this situation on January 8th. But wow, what a, what a moment for Alfred. But far more dismaying to Alfred than the taunting force in the hillside ahead was the absence on either flank of his brother in the second half of the Wessex army. The plan had been for both Alfred and Ethelred to immediately muster their forces and march to face the Danes, but Ethelred was nowhere in sight. Next, the confusion turned to desperation when he saw the Viking men above stretched out in battle array and beginning to advance. See, they see Alfred. Alfred's exposed. He's come out of the woods. So the Vikings see him, and they start moving towards him. Unprepared and halved in strength, how could his men face the descending swarm? You see, the worst thing you can do is run from battle because it puts you, it, you lose your defensive position, and you lose lives at a far quicker pace running with your back to the, uh, the enemy than you do when you face them. But when you're facing an undefeated foe with half your strength, this isn't a good situation, especially if you're feeling a little like Alfred felt, which is, I'm not even that good at this. Okay, we just had a battle, and we lost with great humiliation. I'm 22 years old. I'm just a deputy. They don't even call me king. The term Alfred the Great, uh, it hasn't been seen yet. Okay, he feels very mortal right now. So this is from Asser's life of Alfred. Asser is going to be a bishop who's going to write the story of Alfred, which is one of the reasons we have such detailed understanding of the story. And so this is obviously a translation of his ancient writing. When Alfred could no longer hold off the enemy's battle line without either retreating back from the fight or prematurely charging against the enemy troops before his brother had come to the battle, he finally commanded the Christian troops to advance against the enemy army, acting manfully like a wild boar. <laughs> I love that depiction. He is going to have to make a decision to move forward, trusting that his brother is going to show up, but he can't see his brother. Okay, I don't know if you guys remember when we were talking about reckoning with truth, but you're dealing with a promise, a promise from a king, I'll be there for you, but you don't see him, and you still need to move against something that has always had the upper hand. In fact, your entire experience up to this point is defeat. The entire experience of the islands, not just you personally, is defeat. There's nothing to prove it otherwise. What do you do in this moment? So he is going to advance against the enemy army, acting manfully like a wild boar. I like that. That, that's, that can be like the approach you take in your spiritual life. Because that's exactly what we're called to do. Quit ye like men. Be strong. It's, you're supposed to act manfully in your soul. And, you know, I don't think it says in Scripture you're supposed to act like a wild boar, but I sort of like it. Uh, I like the growl and the determination to say, no, you are on 
foreign soil. This is not your territory, O enemy. It is purchased by the shed blood of Jesus. Get out! Wild boar time. So the first victory. Now, I'm giving something away and saying that they're going to win this. Okay. Now, right now, you can't even fathom how are they going to win this battle. I mean, it is, it's an extraordinary victory because everything about this is stacked against them. They have no history of, of victory. It's cold in the middle of January. I mean, this is the time when Danes fight, and they fight well. The Vikings have the confidence. They have the upper hand. They have the, uh, the bravado. And they are going to be mocking and ridiculing. They're hurling every insult at Alfred as they're starting to come towards him. And so Alfred's forming his shield wall, and you can just sort of feel it, the trembling. And there is no evidence of half the army of Wessex. And he is literally going to take on the military strength of the Vikings, the undefeated Vikings, by his lonesome. And yet his confidence that God has set him where he's at and that God is going before him is what is moving him forward. So the first victory, it's a victory in the dark. It's a great way to describe what it's like for us when we take our step forward. You don't have the breaking of day yet. Jacob's victory is not just the breaking of day. It's the fact that he's going to hold on to God and not let go until the breaking of day. His victory is in the night. He is going to get the name Israel that night. The name of the people of God that hold on to God and do not let go has always been that, Israel. True Israel is found. Like we're true Israel. We're the ones that are going to grab a hold of God and not let go. And that victory, that first victory in our life is going to come in that dark night where we don't buy it. We believe God is greater. And even though it feels like Esau has more power, we believe that God is stronger. So the first victory, a victory in the dark. Genesis 32, 24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. You know what's going to happen that next day? After this situation where Jacob is going to wrestle until the breaking of day, his hip is going to be pushed out of joint, he's going to have a limp. He doesn't look too impressive, right? And yet, there's a power upon this man. And Esau and his 400 armed men are basically going to part the way and let them pass through. The enemy is not going to stop him. And yet, just a few hours before, it seemed like mortal danger. And yet what you're going to see is a change, an alteration of the landscape. Going to battle in spite of Ethelred's delay. Isn't it funny how we, we look at God's uh, delay as a delay in the first place? God's timing is perfect. I don't know that most of us would agree with that statement. We agree with it theologically, but I think we have a tough time with it experientially. It's like God... I don't know that you, you seem to have a fondness for 11.59 and 59 seconds. Why don't we go with like 9.52 and 22 seconds? You know, it just sounds like a, a better time in the evening as opposed to waiting till the last minute. And yet God's timing is perfect. He is choreographing a story. And if you've ever seen a good uh, like drama, whether it's a movie or whether it's a play or anything, there's a timing to everything. God is the master choreographer. He knows when to have Ethelred show up. 
And in this story, you're going to see because of how it plays out, the reason they are going to win this is because of the overconfidence of the Vikings because of the small force of Alfred. And they are going to overplay, and then what's going to happen? Ethelred shows up, and they weren't expecting that. And so it actually becomes part of God's strategy to have Ethelred pleading longer <laughs> with God is actually part of why they are going to win this. But Alfred has to be proven in this. Alfred has to take a step forward. He's not the king, he's just a deputy, but God's building him for something. Alfred, do you trust me? The king has spoken and he says he's going to come. And that's exactly how it starts with us. It's called reckoning, the truth. You take it to your account, my king is coming. He's going to show up in battle. He's going to show up with his mighty array of strength. I trust that. My job is to step forward into the battle trusting that he's going to show up. And ironically, it's because of the timing of the king that seems like a delay that is actually going to be the secret of victory in the Battle of Ashdown, which is going to change the confidences of the people of Wessex because now they know that the Vikings can be beaten. And most of us, we've just never experientially tasted that. We know intellectually and theologically that sin is defeated, but experientially, we may not have walked that out yet. And we need to get to that dark night to hold on to God and say, God, I trust you even though I don't see King Ethelred right now. And I am moving forward into battle to fight manfully and like a wild boar right now. So going to battle in spite of Ethelred's delay, wrecking the might of an unseen army. Isn't that, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're reckoning the might. We're saying there is an unseen army and it's greater than the one I'm fighting. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against me shall prosper. If God be for me, who can stand against me? And you're looking out there and you're like this diddly squat army against this mighty host. Or are you? You're seeing something by faith that this world can't see with its eyes. That's exactly the story of Scripture. 2 Kings 6, 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you see it? Do you see Ethelred's army? Do you see the king's power, even though in the natural realm it doesn't seem obvious? You don't function after what you see in this realm. You function after promise, after the word of truth. God has spoken, he cannot lie. Pulling a Sherilyn. You guys know what that means? <laughs> so pulling a Sherilyn, that's, you know, for anyone getting this via podcast, they're like, what in the world is that? But Sherilyn Deeds is one of our students, and she was our example when we were going through the message, Reckoning with Truth. And, uh, and it, was, it was a very powerful illustration, Sherilyn. I just really appreciate you showing that for us. But Sherilyn ended up getting $10 out of the deal, too. So it's not that bad. Pulling a Sherilyn has some benefits. However, Sherilyn had to make a decision. Because what I said is that she has a, basically, I think it was a $9 problem. And two-ton Tony, you know, the, her challenge in life, the, the picture of the flesh, has always defeated her. And yet, I'm going to give her a statement, a fact, and that is that there is a $10 bill, I think it was two $5 bills, wasn't it? Two $5 bills waiting for you in the back room. And I gave her specific directions. And then I asked her a question. Sherilyn, do you have in your own pockets that which you need to face two-ton Tony and to satisfy two-ton Tony, to overcome two-ton Tony? 
no. Then I asked her another question. But Sherilyn, do you have that which you need to overcome two-ton Tony? Yes. That sounds strange. She has what she needs to overcome him, but she doesn't have it in her pockets. How does she have it? She had it by faith. Faith in what? My word. You see, if she trusts my word, then she immediately takes to her account $10, which is more than she needs. And as a result, she by faith has strength to move forward. Now she still needs to grab the $10, right? But she is moving forward in faith based on promise, not on what we could call crinkle. The crinkle of the $10 was not in her hands. And yet she believed because she trusted my word that she had it and it was hers. And so therefore she had a confidence before she even faced two-ton Tony that she would have what she needed to face two-ton Tony. That two-ton Tony would not be victorious this go-around, even though up to this point two-ton Tony had always been victorious. Why? Because there's an intervention of something known as promise. The word had been spoken to her. Now in this case, the word of Eric is not the word of God, but she could still trust my word and find $10. How much more so the word of God who cannot lie? who is faithful and true. He has given us his word. I will show up, Alfred. I will be there to meet you in battle. We will win and we will prove victorious. We will purge these Vikings out of the land. Are you ready? Yes, king. But king, I don't see you. Where are you, king? And then you remember the word. I will be there. I will meet you in battle. Fight, Alfred. Step forward, trust that I will be present. So trusting, this is what pulling a Sherilyn means. Trusting in the promise of the king more than trembling at the boast of the Vikings. Did you notice how I did that? That was pretty cool. Okay, let me read it again because it's pretty cool. Trusting in the promise of the king more than trembling at the boast of the Vikings. Yeah, that's good, that's good. The crinkle. So the crinkle is what you get when you trust. Like Jacob is going to get the crinkle when he sees Esau part ways and he passes through and he recognizes God is able to do something that he in his own strength could not. You see, Sherilyn is going to get the crinkle when she goes into the back room and actually picks up the two $5 bills. But she had a long journey all the way through the chapel to the back room, trusting the whole way that the word that had been spoken was true. And the same is for all of us in here. We have to act manfully in the moment when it's dark to step forward and believe our God knowing that his word is true. The king has given us his word. He is going to meet us in battle. Step forward. He will not fail. And that's the crinkle. It comes. You do get it. Dr. Benjamin Merkel says it this way. And then without warning, the inexorable Viking assault suddenly dissolved. In one moment, the fierce and relentless barrage of Danish warriors vanished as if it had been a mirage. All that was left was a view of the backside of a panic-stricken mob fleeing for its life. It took several moments for Alfred and his men to recover from their amazement and to realize what had happened. Suddenly, it became clear. King Ethelred had finished his prayers. Guys, that is, that's good. Now you can see why I'm so stirred to teach on Alfred. I mean, this is like good stuff. That is powerful. Lord Jesus, may we act manfully today and move forward in battle like wild boars 
Lord Jesus, we have every reason to trust you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And if God be for us, who can stand against us? It doesn't matter what our experience is, Lord. You have given us your promise, and we stake claim to it now. We declare this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.